Hello and welcome to this first episode of Grubbing in the Filth. My name's Tom. What's this podcast about then? Well, this one, specifically episode one, is about bugs. But the podcast going forward is not about bugs. Or it might be. It's a question of perspective, of semantics. I should probably try and get over my attitude towards the word bug. The word bug is used as a catch-all term, describing small creatures, typically insects. Scuttling things, buzzing things. Those are bugs, right? Things that live in the garden, under stones and logs. That's basically what I'm going to be talking about in this podcast series. So then, why don't I like the word bug, used in this general sense? Why have I not called this a bug podcast, if I'm going to be talking about those creatures that are so widely called bugs? Well, if we're being fussy, and I am, a bug is a specific thing. Episode 1 will be about bugs, which I'll shortly be discussing with Professor Colin Favreit, but episode 2 won't be about bugs, not strictly speaking. We'll get into what a bug actually is soon. But first, with this being the first episode, let's establish what kind of animal this podcast series is about, if I'm determined not to use the word bug. I nearly called it an arthropodcast. Arthropods are animals with segmented legs and a hardened outer casing called an exoskeleton, rather than having an internal skeleton like our own. So insects like ants, beetles, butterflies, arachnids like spiders and scorpions, even crabs, lobsters, centipedes, millipedes, these are all arthropods, with a hardened outer shell and segmented legs. An arthropodcast is a charming turn of phrase, but it's not quite right because there are non-arthropod animals I want to talk about. Invertebrates are animals without a backbone. This covers all the arthropods, but also gives us a chance to talk about soft-bodied animals like the mollusks, snails and slugs, octopus and squid, maybe worms, jellyfish, starfish, even coral. Grubbing in the Filth is an invertebrate podcast. And so, welcome to Grubbing in the Filth, episode one, Bugs with Colin Favreau. I was brought up not to use the word bug. Dad thought it was inaccurate, as I now do. But if I can hop down from my high horse, of course I understand why people use the word bug in a general sense. When we're talking about categorisation of animals, we come up against a lot of language which is technical and scientific and, frankly, of little interest to most people. I like these words, and I like learning about animals and their classifications. I get a little buzz from being able to classify things correctly, and I think it gives you a more detailed sense of the world, understanding how living things relate to each other, and the little groups we can sort them into. Most people aren't that bothered, which is fine, hence bug as a generalist term. It's a convenient, useful descriptor. Most people see a shape creeping on a wall and need a quick term to describe the animal, which they might not be able to identify in specific terms. For most, I realise there's not a great deal of difference between a cockroach, say, and a beetle. So they call it a bug, though I would sagely nod and smugly remind you that neither is actually a bug. To learn more about bugs, I had the opportunity to speak to Colin Favreit. Colin is an entomologist, someone who studies insects, specialising in bugs. In particular, he studies aphids, those minute insects which you see clustered on plants. So Colin, would it be okay if you gave me a brief overview of your professional relationship with insects and invertebrates at large? Yeah, so um, I've loved insects since uh, childhood. Um, I even had my own little insect collection that I had made, um, rather rudimentary for sure. Um, and I went to, to high school, of course, and then on to, to university and sort of lost sight of insects and thought I was going to be a veterinarian for a while. 
Um, but then it was in uh, towards the end of my undergraduate studies that I I didn't like the idea of taking a human physiology course. My physiology course was required, and so uh, that's just because that's what everyone took, and I wanted to be a little different. So I took an insect physiology course and uh, fell back in love with insects. Rediscovered uh, my love and. Uh, decided immediately that I wanted to go on to graduate school in, uh, in entomology. I was uh, at the University of Illinois at the time, and I went on to get a master's and a PhD in insect systematics, uh, which is the, uh, the study of the, the classification and the evolution of insect diversity. Since then, I uh, was a manager of the university's or the, a, a government agency uh, associated with the University of Illinois. Uh, the Illinois Natural History Survey has a very large insect collection, so I was the manager of that collection for a number of years uh, before moving out to the east coast of the United States uh, when I got married. Uh, I ran a small consulting firm uh, in the private sector for a while, mostly working uh, on government contracts. And then I was uh, finally offered uh, my dream job at the University of Montreal, where I am now a, a professor in the Department of Biological Sciences. And I'm now the director of, a, of an insect collection, and uh, I can uh, teach entomology and uh, do a lot of research on insect systematics and diversity, uh, especially regarding aphids, uh, which are small plant-sucking insects uh, that uh, I find absolutely fascinating. Right, let's get into it. What is a bug, a true bug? A bug, a true bug, is a kind of insect, which is a kind of arthropod, which is a kind of animal. I'll take it for granted that people roughly know what an animal is, and I've already mentioned arthropods, animals with exoskeletons and segmented legs. Within the arthropods are the insects. Insects are easily spotted as they have six legs, distinguishing them from centipedes and spiders and so on. Their bodies are split into three distinct sections, the head, the thorax and the abdomen. The abdomen is the larger rear section of the animal and the thorax is the middle section, bearing wings and legs. But not all insects are bugs. We need to focus a step further. Within the insects, there are a number of groups called orders, such as flies, beetles and cockroaches. These are orders of insect. At this level, the ordinal level, we find our category of bugs, the scientific name being the hemiptera. So, what characterises the hemiptera, the true bugs? I'll give you the simplistic version, and then Colin can share a slightly more in-depth perspective or what makes a bug a bug. All bugs are characterised by having piercing mouthparts, as opposed to chewing mouthparts. So bugs drink fluids through a tube-like mouth, sucking up plant sap or drinking the innards of their prey. That's your main way of recognising a bug, but there's a little more to it than that. The hemipteran order, the bugs, was assembled when two previously understood orders of insects were combined into one. As with all things bugs, Colin can explain this much better than me. How is a true bug defined? What is a true bug? Yeah, so that's actually uh, an interesting question because traditionally uh, a true bug would be any insect member of the uh, what is today the suborder Heteroptera. So in the in the past, the the uh, the group was considered an order. It was at the, uh, an ordinal level. So uh, all insects are divided into between around thirty orders, depending on how you how you divide them up. Um, but in the past, the insects that had uh, piercing, sucking mouth parts were either in the order uh, Heteroptera, the true bugs, or the Homoptera. And this, uh, those terms uh, refer to the shape of their wings. Um, Optera meaning uh, uh, winged, 
heteroptera meaning different winged and homoptera meaning the same winged. And so true bugs were heteropterans, um, which have hemelytra. So that's the front wing is divided into a membranous portion and a thicker portion. And if you look at a stink bug and you pull out the front wing uh, to the side, you can see that the wing is divided into these two different, uh, two different sections. That's the front wing. And then the back wing, the hind wing, is always membranous. Now, there's always been an, uh, an understood association between homoptera and heteroptera. And more recently, it was decided that uh, uh, homoptera isn't a real a natural group. And so the two were joined into one order and are, and, uh, that we now called hemiptera. And so today, some people use the term true bug to refer just to the suborder heteroptera, whether, whereas others have enlarged the term true bug to include any uh, insect that belongs to the order hemiptera, including those that have these, these uh, uh, divided wings. And also insects, including uh, cicadas and aphids, and uh, and spittle bugs and leaf hoppers and tree hoppers, as also being uh, true bugs. I want to outline the life cycle of a bug. I think it's incredibly pertinent, and is in fact pertinent when discussing any insect, as all insects fall into two distinct life cycles. They are hemometabolous or holometabolous. Bugs are hemometabolous, but what does that mean? When hemometabolous insects like bugs hatch from an egg. They emerge as a smaller, wingless version of the adult, called a nymph. The insect will then go through a series of gradual changes, growing until it reaches its mature form as an adult. This is called incomplete metamorphosis. This is very different from the familiar life cycle of, for example, butterflies. With butterflies and other holometabolous insects, the juvenile, so say a caterpillar, takes on a pupal form, which you might think of as a cocoon or a chrysalis, before then undergoing a significant full-body change called complete metamorphosis, and reaching its adult form, the butterfly. Complete metamorphosis, or holometabolism, is a much more significant change between the juvenile and the adult. So, looking at the, the true bugs, when you look at the different insect orders in terms of how many species there are within that order, the most uh, species seem to be the ones that go through complete metamorphosis, like the, the ants and the, the butterflies and the flies. But among those that go through incomplete metamorphosis, uh, like the bugs, the bugs seem far and away the most successful in terms of how many species there are. So I wondered how it is that the bugs have been so successful in terms of their diversity. Yeah, so that, that's a, a very good point. Um, among those orders that have complete metamorphosis, there are four really, really big orders, um, the butterflies and moths. The ants, bees, and wasps, uh, the uh, the true flies, and the beetles. There are other smaller orders that have complete metamorphosis. This metamorphosis has always been associated with the great diversity of those four orders. However, the true bugs are by far and away the most diverse of those insects that do not have complete metamorphosis. Um, and also, we would rank them fifth among all the orders, and they outnumber uh, several of the other orders that do have complete metamorphosis. So what is it that makes hemiptera, the true bugs, so diverse? Well, it's uh, probably a combination of factors, um, but I would point uh, as kind of the defining factor to be their uh, piercing, sucking, uh, feeding lifestyle. So um, some of them are predators, some of them are uh, herbivores, 
But in both cases, they have, uh, like a mosquito, which is obviously not a true bug, the fly, it's a true fly, but like a mosquito, they have mouth parts that uh, are designed to pierce uh, into the, um, the, let's say, the, the blood system of either a plant, in which case we're, we would be talking about drinking sap, or into the blood of, of, uh, of another animal um, to drink, to basically imbibe a liquid diet. The, a liquid diet of this sort uh, tends to lead towards specialization. So among the, the uh, plant-feeding hemiptera, many of them are specialized to feed on very specific kinds of trees or plants, and also with regards to predators and parasites, because there are some, uh, some true bugs that are parasites of, uh, of vertebrates, for example, they also become more specialized uh, over evolutionary time. And so the specialization allows them to, to diversify one species from another. Right, that's fascinating. So then, with them being so, so diverse, is there anywhere on the planet that we would go where we wouldn't find bugs? Antarctica. Um, there, there's only one endemic uh, insect in Antarctica, and it's uh, a fly. So there are no bugs there. Um, I think in the hottest, most extreme environments um, in the middle of the Sahara, there would be few bugs. Um, there aren't any, any plants, so there won't be any, uh, any plant feeding bugs for sure. But otherwise, pretty much anywhere on earth where you have plants, um, you will find uh, true bugs and you will find the insects that feed on those plants. So then you'll also have the predatory true bugs. So there we have them, the bugs. They range from minute creatures less than a millimetre in length, scuttling about in the leaf litter, to much larger creatures like giant water bugs and cicadas. Shield bugs or stink bugs, I should think are familiar to most people, as well as aphids, which we often see clustered in groups on plants. The word bug has an odd history and wasn't always a scientific term. It's from the archaic Middle English bug that we get terms like bogeyman and bugbear, describing monsters and frightening things. It also referred to scarecrows, objects of fear at the crow community. John Wycliffe's Bible, an early English translation of the Bible from the 1300s, uses the word bug to describe a scarecrow, as a bug either a man of ragis in the place with the girdus waxen. Shakespeare in Hamlet further demonstrates the monstrous connotations of bug, writing of such bugs and goblins in Hamlet. So a bug was a fearful thing, and it's from this definition that we gain the first use of bug in reference to an insect. In particular, the word was used to denote the bed bug. It's understandable that the bed bug was marked as a fear-inspiring creature. To this day, it inflicts misery and fear on those unfortunate enough to come into contact with it. I'll go on to sing the praises of bugs. However, fear of bed bugs is, I think, fair. In terms of reasons to be afraid of an insect, the bed bug ticks most boxes. It invades our space, it feeds on us. Bedbugs infesting a home will live on the blood of the inhabitants. They emerge at night and drink our blood without us feeling a thing, leaving us with an itch, a rash, and the unpleasant, unclean feeling of having been parasitised. It infests. A bedbug infestation could run into the thousands, but the creatures are well hidden. You'll see dirty spots in the sheets before you catch sight of a bug. They reproduce voraciously, laying minuscule eggs, which you'll struggle to be confident of having uncovered and removed entirely. It's a formidable enemy. By virtue of its numbers, its capacity to remain hidden, and the possibility of missing an egg or two, bedbugs are incredibly difficult to remove from a home. Often it's recommended that an infested home be completely emptied of all soft furnishings. Even then, bedbugs and bedbug eggs could easily remain in floorboard cracks or in some other hideaway. 
They can survive extremes of temperature and have developed resilience to pesticides. A quick check of Google Trends shows us the degree to which bed bugs are searched for, in comparison to other insects often considered pests. More people are looking up bed bugs than they're looking up cockroaches, termites, and moths. And while searches for those other pests seem pretty stable, the frequency of bed bug Googling is increasing. Crowded housing makes transference of these creatures between residences simple, and an industry has grown up around their removal, with some psychiatrists apparently specialising in treating people in the wake of bed bug induced trauma. As we're forced to live in close proximity together, paying exorbitant fees for increasingly small living spaces, it's worth pointing out that the truest parasite is the landlord and the hoarders of wealth. Right, so let's now choose some bugs which are a little less frightening to get a measure of how interesting these creatures can be. I don't think people should be fearful of insects. They're always around us and recognising them as interesting and exciting rather than monolithically horrid, I think gives you a more interesting world in which to exist. So let's learn about a bug that I'm sure you're familiar with. Aphids, or greenfly, blackfly, common specialisation. Aphids are fantastic examples of what I like about insects. They're present in our lives, familiar, apparently unexciting, but then I got to learn about them from Colin, and they're utterly bizarre, absolutely fascinating. So then you in particular have specialised in aphids and learn a lot about aphids and study aphids. Um, what What is an aphid? So I know them as greenfly or blackfly, but what is it that defines an aphid? So aphids are uh, a group of, of uh, true bugs, or um, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll just we'll call them true bugs. We'll use the, the broader sure. term. Um, they are uh, relatively small insects. Um, some are as small as say a millimeter in length. The very largest might get up to a centimeter in length, uh, but that's quite extreme. Most would be smaller than than five millimeters in length, say, um, and. They're all plant feeding. They're all special. Uh, mo- almost all species are specialists on uh, certain kinds of plants, um, and they are pretty much defined by their life cycles. So they are parthenogenetic uh, for most of their for most of the uh, growing season. So that means that a female gives birth, uh, and it happens to be live birth. So they're not even laying eggs. So they're giving right. live birth to clones of themselves. Uh, so there's there's no sexual reproduction throughout most of the season. And then only, and then here we're talking temperate regions of the world, uh, in the fall, there will be the production of sexual forms. Um, they will mate, the female will then lay an egg, and that egg w- will overwinter. In the springtime, the, uh, the, the aphid will hatch from that egg. We call her the, the, the fundatrix or the foundress because she will found a new colony. And then she will give live parthenogenetic birth, asexual birth, that is, throughout uh, the season. Her offspring will be asexual as well. Um, and so, um, so it's really this, uh, this uh, we call it viviparity, so this uh, live birth and Parthenogenetic lifestyle that define uh, the uh, the aphids, and 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 there is I should I should specify there is still a sexual generation, um, so there is still sexual re- reproduction that happens once a year. It's just that most of the year there it's uh, it's parthenogenetic and asexual. Yeah. So then, what is it if they are largely reproducing asexually, and only occasionally producing individuals that reproduce sexually? How is it that they are able to? To, to change and to produce a, a new type of aphid, as it were, then? So th- this, is, this is one of the, the aspects that's really fascinating about aphid biology. In the 
throughout the season from the from the fundatrix, the colony founders that emerges from the egg, her offspring are clones. Now she typically does not have wings, and she will give birth to other individuals that typically do not have wings. However, when the as the colony grows, as more and more individuals are produced, they will reach a point where um, say the quality of the host is deteriorating or um, uh, or the colony has gotten too large, and so the, there's competition between individuals, there will be a genetic trigger that will cause the production of winged individuals. So they'll start giving birth to winged individuals. So we have right there, we have three forms, the fundatrix, the wingless individuals, and the winged individuals, who are all actually, actually genetic clones of one another. Um, so there, there are environmental triggers in this case, it could be colony crowding or um, uh, reduction in the quality of the host that uh, changes the developmental pathway of the embryos um, so that they develop uh, a anatomical differences. So the same thing happens in the fall where it can be uh, a, a reduction in the, um, uh, typically it's a reduction in the photoperiod. So um, it can also be temperatures, but the, a change of photoperiod being there's, there's less sunlight. Um, and so Basically, fall conditions trigger a change in the development, the development of the embryos within the live birth li uh, viviparous, the live birth giving uh, aphids, to then produce two more clones. So they're still genetically identical. Uh, it just so happens that these are egg-laying, sexually re reproducing females and males. So there we've added uh, a fi uh, fourth and fifth clone. Um, and then those males and females, uh, they are sexual, so they will mate. And that's where you will have a genetic recombination uh, between, uh, between individuals. I, sh I should add, uh, since we're speaking about this, that that lifestyle is the simplest of the general lifestyles. Now, there are a few species that have become fully parthenogenetic. So they live in warmer climates, um, and they, they never produce sexual uh, individuals. That's pretty rare. The, uh, the kind of the generic, uh, probably ancestral lifestyle is this one that I just described with the five uh, forms. Um, but then there are others that get a lot more complicated. So some aphids will alternate hosts. So in the in the spring they'll be on a on a woody host, a tree or a, or a bush, um, and then they will migrate. Or a uh, subsequent generations will migrate to an herbaceous host. Um, that's an annual host that you know only grows during the summer, and then the sexual forms will migrate back to the woody host in the fall. And so those that are feeding on the woody host and those that are feeding on the herbaceous host also are genetic clones, and but they are also uh, um, biologically distinct and often also anatomically distinct. So you we you can have up to twelve, thirteen, maybe even fourteen different anatomically distinct, biologically distinct genetic clones. Right, it's a, it's a it's a bizarre notion, isn't it? From the kind of it's very unlike what we see in almost any other animal, as far as I can think. Well, it's yeah, it's it's the it's the degree of differentiation that really is is striking that you can have two individuals, one with wings and one without wings, and yet they are they are genetic clones. However, even in um, other animals, you can have you, you genetic clones will be anatomically different. I mean, even uh, identical twins who are genetic clones of each other will still have differences. We can usually 
uh, once you get to know them, you can you can tell apart identical twins. Absolutely. One thing that's interesting is you've mentioned the horse plant and the specific horse plants that these aphids have. What prevents an aphid that feeds on on you know a pine tree from being able to feed on a I don't know an elder tree? Is there anything in particular that that means that these animals have to be specific in the plant they feed from? So th- there are several factors that limit an aphid's ability to colonize a new, uh, a completely new kind of host. Usually when there are host shifts, it will be from, say, one type of pine to another type of pine. But um, one, pro- probably the, the very first factor that limits host shift is simply host recognition. So the aphid is uh, uh, sensitive to the chemical volatiles or when they probe the, the plant um, with, their, with our mouth parts, they're sensitive to only certain kinds of chemicals. And so, so there's just a kind of a behavioral rejection of the wrong, wrong kind of host. Right. Okay. Um, secondly, there's also the anatomy of the, of the mouth parts. So insects that feed on grasses, for example, tend to have short stubby mouth parts. Um, whereas those that feed on say the roots of trees, uh, there's one type of aphid that has extremely long mouth parts. They're longer than the body of the, of the, of the rest of the aphid. Um, and that's to be able to pierce the bark of the of the trunk or the roots of the, of the tree. Um, so, th- so there's an anatomical difference, and and uh, there's less research has been done on the chemical sensitivities of of saying being able to digest the uh, the phloem that is the sap of of the of the plant, but certainly there are limitations in in uh, chemical limitations when uh, an in- an aphid uh, taps into the sap of a tree, um, what they're able to, uh, to digest, absorb um, with regards to, to what they're actually feeding on. And I, I should I add, see. actually, right even before that, there's probably another, another element, which is uh, the mouth parts have to find the phloem elements, so, that, so the, the cells that, um, uh, that, um, that transmit the sap um, uh, along the, uh, the plant, um, the aphid has to tap into those particular cells. So its mouth parts are specialized to essentially wind their way between the cells of the epidermis of the leaf. For example, if they're feeding on a leaf, they have to go uh, through the epidermis between the cells um, and then uh, probe various different cells to find the phloem element, to find the, the cell that they can feed on. Um, and so that takes a, a fair amount of specialization uh, to be able to do that. And then, each, of course, each plant has different kinds of cells and will, will uh, the, um, the mouth parts of the aphid have to be specialized to be able to find the right kind of cell in the right kind of plant. I see. I noticed earlier, you've, you know, from my experience of aphids, when I see aphids, I see them crowded together. And you've mentioned colony crowding and that word colony has come up a few times Mm-hmm. And that's a word that I associate with with ants and with wasps and bees and things like this. And I wondered, do aphids show any kinds of social behaviour or are they colonies purely in the sense of they are aggregating on the host? So aphids show the, the full diversity of sociality. Um, so there are those aphids that are clearly asocial. Um, they, they, they are uh, solitary. Uh, they give live birth, and when their babies are born, the babies crawl away and, and live all right. alone. Others will form colonies and and not 
so much be social um, in any kind of behavioral context, except that they happen to be together. Um, and they're um, colon- forming the colony does provide some defense against predators in the sense that one predator can't always, <laughs> sometimes they do, <laughs> uh, wipe out the entire colony. The, the, the predator will, will become satiated. Yeah. Um, however, some aphids have taken that to the next step where, uh, for example, there is one that feeds on beech trees, on the trunks of beech trees in North America. Um, and it will form colonies, and the individuals uh, produce wax that come off their abdomens, and uh, it's bright white wax, these long filaments. And when a predator approaches, the individuals in the colony will all waggle their abdomens in synchrony to create kind of a flashing uh, disruptive pattern so that when the predator arrives, the predator becomes uh, startled. Then we can go into... uh, uh, gall-forming aphids. So there's some aphids that will uh, uh, affect the development of, say, the leaf of a plant, so that the leaf will, the plant will actually grow a uh, a chamber around the aphid uh, within on right on the plant, so that the the aphid and its colony. So then it will create a colony is completely enclosed within this gall on the plant, and in some uh, situations, uh, in certain uh, lineages of aphids, there has actually been uh, the development of full, what we call eusociality. So eusociality is the same level of of sociality that we see in ants and honeybees, for example, where you have the queen, which is in this case, the colony foundress that we've already discussed. Mm -hmm. Um, You have uh, workers, you can even have uh, soldiers that are specialized. They have horns on their head and uh, their job is to protect the gall. Uh, from intruders, uh, so you actually have this this full level of uh, sociality in uh, in several uh, lineages of, of aphids. So they they can show the full um, the full diversity. Now they're not like ants. Every ant uh, species is social, um, whereas in aphids there there are not that many uh, truly eusocial ants. Uh, uh, sorry, eusocial aphids, but there are but there are a few. It's it's quite stunning actually. I mean, I you know aphids are really everyday in the sense of they're just around and we see them on plants and people see them as, as irritants, even, you know, farmers and gardeners and things, but the scale of variety and the complexity of their lives and how strange their lives are. This seems like something that, you know, I didn't know about the fact they have this range of sociality and the, the bizarreness and the, how unfamiliar their reproductive cycle seems to be. Do you, do you, wish that these complexities were more widely appreciated by people? Well, I'm, I'm an aphidologist first, but I'm also an entomologist. My, my degree, mm. I actually have an entomology degree. Um, there are not many people who, who, who graduate from an actual entomology department. So I'm, and I, and I also study uh, the diversity of insects in general. So I guess if, if, if I had my wish, people would better understand the diversity and the complexity of all insect life uh, in general. I mean, of, of course, course I, yeah. I love aphids. They're what I study. Um, but there are so many different kinds of, of insects. Um, and yes, aphids have an uh, amazing story, but so do many, many other uh, kinds, of, uh, kinds of insects. Um, so yes, and on the one hand, I do wish people knew more about aphids. Um, the vast majority of species are not pests. Um, 
Right. M- most of them are innocuous to to humans. They and they they, they are sustenance to to birds and bees and uh, lots of different kinds of flies and lacewings and other insects. Um, and uh, and they are biologically. See, I, this is this is one of the, the neat things about aphids. Is on the one hand, they're all various very stereotypical they all feed on the phloem of plants they all have piercing sucking mouth parts um, and yet within that very narrow uh, what seems to be not uh, so diverse you know they're, they're specialized feeding lifestyles um, they're actually very diverse in and complex in their uh, in their actual biologies and for that reason aphids have actually become a, a pretty good model for studying evolution um, for studying uh, host associations uh, for studying. Um, they're actually one of the top models for studying uh, what's called the microbiome. So these are bacteria that live within the intestines, or not the intestines, they live, they live within cells within the aphid, and they help uh, process uh, the, the plant sap that the, that the aphids ingest. Um, and so there's a whole, a whole uh, microflora of bacteria that live inside of aphids and they they're well uh, well studied um, so there's uh, there's a lot to learn about aphids and there's a lot of biological phenomena that we can study uh, by working with uh, with aphids. it's it's they're a good example of you know why I like insects I think because they're you know it's a little green thing on a plant but then there's all this information that you can learn if you choose to pay attention to aphids and to, to read about them and things. I think it's absolutely fascinating. Absolutely. Absolutely. As a, as a systematist, we study, I study a lot of, uh, of uh, preserved specimens. Um, one of the challenges with aphids is they're one of the few insects that we have to mount to microscope slides to study, uh, right, at least okay. to, to study their, their anatomy. So they often get uh, neglected. Uh, most people like to study insects that you can put on a pin um, it's three-dimensional. It's, uh, they're, they're much prettier when they're preserved that way. Um, you can look at them under the microscope perhaps a little bit more easily. Um, so, so aphids do get neglected uh, in that regard. Other, but other slide-mounted insects also get, <laughs> get neglected. I, sure. I don't want to make it sound like uh, aphids are the only ones that uh, get the bum deal. No, we don't want to start an entomological infighting. Absolutely. Well, there, there, there's always a lot of... Uh, of it's not really infighting. There's a lot of good uh, teasing that goes on uh, right. between the various entomological communities. I w- yeah, I can imagine that a, a glass case full of aphids in a museum wouldn't be the most striking sight. Exactly, exactly. People like to see the big, the big butterflies, the big beetles, maybe uh, some dragonflies. So yeah, so so selling the beauty of aphids is more of an intellectual exercise than it is a aesthetic exercise, maybe. Well, you've done a very fine job of it. <laughs> Thank you. I wonder, would it be possible to ask about some some other bug species? So you mentioned a few earlier on. Well, I mentioned stink bugs. <laughs> Shield bugs, sometimes called stink bugs, are broad-bodied bugs often of a pretty decent size, certainly many times greater in size than an aphid. Here in the UK, you've probably seen a common green shield bug with its pentagonal, shield-like body, a beautiful apple green. The shield bugs belong to the suborder Heteroptera, which Colin mentioned earlier, one of the suborders that forms the hemipterans, the bugs. Heteroptera means different winged, and the reason for this is easy to observe in shield bugs. If you image search for shield bugs, you'll be able to see the membranous section of their wings, 
folds at the rear of the insect, contrasting its thickened wing section. You could image search for shield bug wings for an even clearer view. Well, well stink bugs are, are really interesting. So, so they're part of this suborder called the Heteroptera. And the, the Heteroptera probably diverged from the rest of the, the Hemiptera, okay, the rest of the bugs, um, by adopting a predatory lifestyle. So okay. a lot of uh, heteropterans are, are, are predators. And what's interesting about the stink bugs is that they have reverted back and forth in different lineages of stink bugs between being herbivorous and being predators. And there are a few, in fact, that are omnivorous. So they can be predators and uh, herbivores uh, at the same time, which is very peculiar in a... Um, in an insect lifestyle. Insects tend to be uh, specialist uh, uh, on their diet. So, so the stink bugs are, are, are really peculiar. Most, most groups of uh, bugs, whether we're talking homoptera or heteroptera, true bugs, um, are either herbivores or they're predators, but the stink bugs can, can do both depending on, on right. which species. So for clarity, with, with the stink bugs, are we talking, because... I know the expression stink bug. I tend to think of them as shield bugs. Are we talking about the same creature here? So uh, they, they can be the, the, the same uh, creature. Uh, sometimes shield bugs refer to another group that very closely related to, to stink bugs. Um, but, you know, with common names, sometimes they can be a little uh, fluid in, in how they're, in how sure. they're, they're used. Um, so, uh, yeah, so, so we're talking about insects that are roughly uh, pentagonal in, in shape. Um, so, so they're not long like most, like most insects. Um, they have uh, their mouth parts, like most predators, their mouth parts uh, point forward when they're feeding. Um, and then uh, when, when they stop feeding, then they fold their mouth parts back, back uh, down. Um, right. So yes, I, I think, uh, and, and of course, there there may be different uses of of common names uh, on different sides of, uh, of the Atlantic. Of course, yeah, <laughs> where where we're each located. I might get my pronunciation wrong here. Pentatomidae. Yes, it's interesting to think about the more the more predatory bugs. The one that I didn't realize was even a bug is the the pond skater. Yeah, so uh, most of the aquatic true bugs are predators. Um, and this this comes back to this idea that uh, that the the ancestor of the heteroptera uh, was uh, was a predator. Um, so uh, pond skaters or water striders, uh, we call them uh, on this side of the Atlantic. Um, they they live on the surface of the water. Their their feet are specialized to not break the surface tension of uh, of the water. So they they. Like their their common name uh, implies, they they skate around on the surface of the water. They use the surface tension um, to, uh, to to stay afloat, and and they're predators. So they will often be catching insects, uh, aquatic insects that emerge out of the water. So they, so they lived most of their life in the water, and like mosquitoes would be an example. Um, and then as they as they metamorphose uh, to become adults. They emerge out of the water, and so the uh, water striders, the pond skaters, are there to to catch them um, as they as they emerge. Until I started thinking about bugs, I never really stopped to think about pond skaters. They're just a presence, a thing you see on ponds. 
So let's stop and acknowledge the ways that pond skaters are interesting. For a start, they can walk on water. Or not walk per se, but certainly stand and manoeuvre and generally chill out. Their legs are covered in microscopic hairs which trap air and are hydrophobic, meaning they repel water. This means that a skater can stand without breaking the surface tension of the water. Here, as a spider uses a web, the pond skater can use its legs to detect ripples and vibrations on the pond's surface. Suppose a fly crashes into the water, breaking the surface tension, trapping itself. The pond skater can detect it. The skater uses its front and back pairs of legs to support itself, propelling itself across the water surface with its middle set of legs to the unfortunate fly. Reaching its prey, it uses its beak-like mouth to pierce through a weak point in the insect's exoskeleton and can now feed. There isn't a single creature called a pond skater. The creature we're probably most familiar with is the common pond skater, Gerus lacustris. But this animal is part of a broader family called the Geridae, represented by over a thousand individual species around the world. Within the pond skater family, we have the only truly marine insects, sea skaters or halibates. Halibates? Not sure. These animals live at the coast, or occasionally out in the open ocean. I guess they're a good example of the diversity of the of the true bugs, that you've got ones that that live on plants in colonies, and you've got ones that that knock about on the surface of the water and, and feed on other animals. Right, right. And, and within the aquatic uh, heteroptera, you have those that uh, swim on their backs. Uh, we call them back swimmers. Um, usually near the near the surface, and you can see them spinning around uh, just uh, underneath the surface uh, of the water. Um, there are those that are entirely underwater, and they just walk around on the bottom of uh, of the pond. Um, sometimes coming up to the surface just to stick a siphon up to get some air uh, to to breathe. So they can't breathe underwater as as fully aquatic animals can. So. So, uh, so the, the true uh, the true bugs don't have gills uh, the way other some other aquatic insects uh, have, but what they do is they uh, many of them will create a, either an artificial gill, so they 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 maintain they have these special hairs that maintain a, a coating basically a bubble that coats the whole body, um, and so when they come up to the surface they exchange uh, air in this in this coating bubble. Um, and then they can draw upon that air uh, as they as they swim, and really interestingly, that air, especially when when it's coating the whole body, there can be gas exchange between the water and the bubble. So nice. um, they do have to come back to the surface to to exchange air, but they can also absorb oxygen out of uh, directly out of the water. Others have a siphon. And so they'll swim around and then they'll come up and then they'll exchange air, maybe keep, uh, keep the air underneath uh, their wings or, uh, or just take a, take a deep breath, basically. Hopefully you have some new ideas about what a bug is and a sense of the varieties of lifestyles, even within the single order of insects. And this single order sits among a pantheon of other bizarre, diverse orders, each vastly different to each other and entirely other to us. To restate my little mission statement, I want in this podcast to give you some insight into the complex lives of the creatures which exist around you and which you might not have thought about too much. Pond skaters, aphids, bedbugs and shieldbugs, just a few examples of the strange lives that we can observe within the true bug family, the Hemiptera. The pond skater is such an innocuous presence. We see it at the local duck pond, its legs all splayed out, cutting about in sharp bursts of speed. But it's a deadly, highly specialised predator, adapted to an unusual way of life and surely worthy of note. The aphid, with its Fundatrix female building colonies of clones before producing winged offspring. These are incredible animals. 
Now, before we let Colin go, I wanted to ask one pertinent question. Well, it's, it's absolutely fascinating to hear about all these, all these bugs, you know, particularly as they, I think they're much maligned. I wondered, last, as a sort of last question, and so I was learning a bit about, um, about bed bugs, and which obviously is a, is a, uh, a parasitic or a blood feeding animal. I wondered in your kind of, in your experience of bugs and in your professional career, have you been bitten by a bug? I have. Um, I've been bitten by plant feeding bugs. Uh, sometimes they oh, just really? land on you and don't know what to do. And they'll probe to see if you're a plant. And they have um, a crack. Okay. I've been bitten by predatory bugs, uh, much in this, uh, in the same way. They kind of land on you and, and don't know what to do. So they see if you, if you're tasty. Um, and mm-hmm. I have also been bitten by a bed bug. Uh, I stayed in a hotel. Nice. I, I can't name the name of it, of course. <laughs> no, of um, course. But uh, I woke up in the middle of the night and I, my hands were itching and my ear was itching. I said, I know exactly what is going on. So I got out of bed, turned on the lights and uh, looked uh, in the bed sheets, found a bed bug. Um, as an entomologist, I found this fascinating. I was not worried about my health. Uh, bed bugs don't transmit diseases, um, thankfully. And then the next morning, I went and talked to the manager, and the manager of the hotel just blanched and took me off to a secret room, and we talked about this, and they had they had, had previous problems with bed bugs, and I assured them, I, I just wanted to let you know, um, you know, maybe you can give me a free night. So they gave me a free night, and that was the end of it. Um, they were just glad I wasn't going to sue them, I suppose. Um, but, but I have that specimen in my, in my collection to this day. Oh, really? They, they, they let me keep it. <laughs> what a charming mentor. Yes. I guess you're the worst person possible to have encountered their bed bug problem. Yes. Well, um, I, I imagine the very next day they called the exterminators. And uh, bed bugs are, are a serious problem uh, in, in some hotels because they get established. And many of them are uh, resistant to pesticides. And so uh, they can cause some really serious problems. Uh, in, in some yeah, cases. Yeah, and, and it's getting worse as I understand it. It's, it's, getting, it's getting worse precisely because of this uh, resistance to, to pesticides. And then they, right. they travel around in people's luggage and, uh, you know, people who are going from hotel to hotel. I suppose now with, uh, with everyone being uh, confined and, and there being a lot less travel, uh, this might be a, a moment of respite for, uh, for the bed, bu- for bed bug uh, distribution. Well, thank you so much for speaking to me about about bugs and all the, the exciting things they do. Um, it's been a pleasure. I, I've been metaphorically bitten by the bug now, I think, <laughs> um, though I have not been fed on by a real one, as far as I can think. Um, yeah, I really, really appreciate you spending some time chatting with me. So thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Whether or not, like me and my dad, you've sworn off the word bug as a generalist term in deference to the hemiptera, I hope this podcast has given you pause for thought about these fascinating creatures and that you'll join me again next time on Grubbing in the Filth. Thanks again to Colin Favrish. If you are compelled by the aphids, Colin has a website, aphidnet.org, which is a great place to go and read up on those amazing animals. Growing in the Filth is written and produced by me, Tom Sharp, with music by Will Hatton. Please do look up Grubbing in the Filth on Instagram and Twitter, and always feel free to email your buggish perspectives to grubbinginthefilth at gmail.com. Until next time, 
Don't forget to unfold your beak-like stylus mouthparts and drink deep of plant sap. Bye.